Amen. If you would remain standing and open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. First Corinthians chapter one, I will ask the Lord's blessing upon the reading and the preaching of his word, and then I'll read from chapter one and chapter 16. Let's pray together. Now, blessed Lord, we, we come again in the name of Jesus. Lord, we seek your grace and mercy. We seek all of the blessings that you have for us that are bound up in Christ. We seek it this morning from this word. Lord, we seek to understand why this letters would be so valuable and beneficial to us as a body. Help us to understand it. Help us, O Lord, to see the usefulness of it Even this morning, Lord, as I raise many points throughout the book, preparing our hearts and our minds to study it in depth, that Jesus would be glorified, we would be matured and built up into that spiritual temple, that house that Paul talks about, that we would be made mature, men and women, young people, in Christ, and we would Not, O Lord, we would repent of our leaning upon the world for value or for, Lord, some seeing the world as somehow useful as Christians. Help us, O Lord, to repent of our worldliness and rest more and more upon Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to read those first four verses, and then I want to read one verse from chapter 16 as a continuation of last Lord's Day sermon. Hear now the word of the Lord. Paul, called an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Sososthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling with all who are in every place, call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus. And now chapter 16. In verse 22. If anyone does not love the Lord... He is to be accursed and Maranatha. And thus ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. And last Lord's Day, I began to answer the question that I was asked many times, and that is, Pastor, why 1 Corinthians and not 
the book of Revelation or the book of Hebrews or some prominent Old Testament book? And those are good questions. And I certainly spent much time considering those things and prayerfully going over uh, my own heart and, and seeking to lay before the Lord what I believe the spiritual condition was of this body and what might be a benefit to us. I mean, it's easy, brothers and sisters, for a minister to preach things they like to preach, their preferences and whatnot. Now, I want to tell you, I've never preached through the book of 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians. So this, these past three months or so getting ready for these sermons have been very useful and beneficial to me in my own spiritual walk as I've in depth began studying the book in preparation preparing my own heart, but also preparing to bring to you useful and beneficial messages. And last week I began answering uh, that question. Hopefully you were able to benefit from a few of those reasons because there are many, but I only am planning to give you a few, if it were, as it were, just sort of appetizers so that you might prayerfully and, and just just delight in the study ahead. Now, it's God's word. And you say, oh, we ought to always delight in God's word. And yeah, that is so true. But if I told you this morning I was going to be preaching through Leviticus, I think many of you would be like, ah, that's kind of hard reading and what are we doing? And so, it, it, listen, all of God's word is beneficial and has a place. But we also, and Paul does this in the book of Corinthians. He, he, he understands where they are as a people, as a church. And he seeks to grow them in Christ from where they are to a mature state. Now, brothers and sisters, the apostle Paul saw mankind in three categories. And this is important to the book. He saw the world broken up into three groups. They were the Jews, and they were the Gentiles, and then there was the church. There were the Jews, then there was the Gentiles, and there was the church. And the church is made up of both of those other groups. And in forming the church in the pouring out of the spirit of God and the preaching of the gospel and God saving people. He's saving both Jews and Gentiles. Now what's important and reason I bring that up is because if a Jew who comes to know Christ and being incorporated into the body of Christ, that Jew must abandon his superstitions he must abandon the traditions that he was raised up in as, as in the Pharisees, the tradition of the Pharisees or the tradition of the elders. And as Paul said, the Jews seek signs. If a Greek, well, you have to abandon those philosophers of the age. You have to give up those worldly philosophers and, and wed yourself to the wisdom of Christ. But both groups 
must abandon those things that have been highly esteemed among themselves and be incorporated together into what Paul called the temple of God or the body of Christ. He uses those two terms in the letter. And how those two groups must now become one together in Christ, not separate working apart from one another, but become one, a like-mindedness, a one heart, if you will. And then, of course, to sum it all up, he says that this is imperative. Well, because that's the witness of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is coming to you and is in you for bringing you all together as one. So there's the, that's why Paul called it the power of God. And Paul recognized himself, as we'll see in a little bit, as a master builder. Building a great spiritual house for God's sake, for Christ's glory, if you will. And again, both groups needing to contend with and die to and put off those things that they were raised to esteem. Okay? It's no different with us, those things that we were raised to esteem before Christ. If we've come to Christ as adults, then certainly we have more to die to. We have more work to do in divorcing ourselves, as it were, from the world, right? from those things that we have attached ourselves to, those things we've esteemed, those things that were of great importance to us, those things that we found value and benefit in. Now we must die to those things and now embrace all that Christ has for us as adults. Now maybe as a young person, growing up in the church, it's gonna be slightly different for you. We typically understand young people that grow up in the church as covenant children. But nevertheless, there are still those things that you contend with that you cannot allow to get in the way of your relationship with Jesus. It could be friendships. It might not be the philosophers of the age per se, but maybe or somehow in a secondary fashion, they come to you through other believers who are not, who are weak. Siblings, cousins, friends, any form of associations, people that you admire and look up to. If you admire them, if you look up to them and they hold certain positions, I promise you, you're going to entertain that position. And Paul does deal with influences and how those bad influences can wreak havoc in the church. In fact, it's in Corinthians that he says, right? Bad company corrupts good morals quotation out of Proverbs. So brothers and sisters, it's a book that 
is highly useful to the modern day church. A modern day church that seems to be struggling with identity in this world that seems to struggle with finding a place that they're comfortable with and, and, and instead of seeking the accolades and the acceptance of academia or somehow the, the movers and shakers, the uh, TikTok influencers or these YouTube theologians and whatever the case may be that they are seeking to find that acceptance and they have forgotten that they are been they, they've been incorporated into a spiritual house and their sole aim is Christ. Christ. That though we may highly value others, they cannot usurp the place of Christ in our lives. Not the minister, not the session, not the father, not the mother. Not the TikTok folks, not the YouTube influence, but none of them can ever take the place of Christ. And we must, beloved, keep ever before us the need we have to submit ourselves to Jesus and his teaching and his word and his will. And when people are incompatible with that, we must be willing to walk away from them. We must be willing to have some form of separation, of protection against them, and not at least in the sense of influence, allowing them to influence us. And we're going to see how Paul addresses that in just a moment. A very useful book. A, a book that I think will help set a path before us that we will wholeheartedly walk down and embrace and see as this is the will of God for Chalcedon Presbyterian Church at this very hour. This is the need we have to realign our thinking that we might wed ourselves off of the philosophies of this age, the securities, the trust, all of the various things. I'll give you one that I, I mean, as important as politics is to our daily living, brothers and sisters, we cannot put our trust in men. And that's the whole point of accountability. That's the whole point of having checks and balances is because what happens when men fail other men? What happens when people fail to keep their oath of office? What happens when there's treason? What happens when there is a lack of duty and responsibility to the office? If they are so highly esteemed and recognized and well, if our trust is in men, we won't hold them accountable. And that's been the case for far too long in this nation. We've taken our eyes off of Christ. And we've taken our eyes off of Christ 
by and large in the church too, and this is why the church is so weak as it is in this country. I've always wondered, and even when I was a young Christian, I kept thinking, wow, there are so many churches in this land. Why are we struggling with so much immorality in this nation? If, 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 I mean, we have tens of thousands, tens of thousands of thousands of people gathering in churches across this land today to worship God, to profess him, to acknowledge some form of relationship, and yet why are we in such moral decay? We can only say is because it has become more of a lip service than a heart service. That's the only answer. That we've taken our eyes off of Jesus. That we've not considered the head of the church and the will of the one who is the head of the church. And we've not considered what we are as a people, as a spiritual house, as a holy temple of God. We have forgotten those things. Make no mistake about it, brothers and sisters, the church at Corinth was a weak church. A true church but a weak church. And that's why these opening verses are in some sense staggering when you begin to study the book and you begin to catalog some of the sins that were uh, uh, in the church, if you will. Some of the sins that they were guilty of. And Paul calls them in verse two, he says, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus, our Lord, their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you, he says, for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus. I mean, it was a true church. But a weak, compromised church that the apostle Paul is calling to repentance who is being admonished by the apostle, who is being reprimanded and challenged to continue to give up this world and to pursue their faith in Christ. I want to pick up where I left off last week. I know I addressed these influences that were being used by the Corinthians to justify their sinfulness. And I don't really want to say any more about that, but I will say that there were not only that these influencers had certainly um, had caused the church to fragment from one another, but they were also guilty of, well, using church pastors and using the ministers to segregate from one another. And Paul addresses that in the very first chapter. He says, you know, he says, you, you are guilty of, you know, saying, hey, I am of Paul or, or one group saying I'm of Apollos and another group saying I'm of Cephas and another group uh, saying, well, I'm of Christ. 
Again, because they had taken their eyes off of Jesus and they have placed it upon men, even within the ministry, the result was a fragmentation and a division of the body in an unhealthy way. Because Paul wants to make sure that they understand, listen, if, if, they, if, if you're listening to the ministers that have been sent to you by Christ, then the result and the fruit is going to be unity of the body, not division of the body. Because the Spirit of God comes to unify the body around its head, Jesus Christ. You know, that's the Spirit working in you this morning. The Spirit who is at work in every Christian is bringing you into conformity to Jesus, bringing you to maturity, and then he's also bringing you in unison, in unity, if you will, with other Christians because the Spirit is doing the same thing in their lives as he's doing in your life, maturing, shaping, molding bringing light to uh, your mind and heart, heat to your heart, knowledge to your head, so that you might be able to outwardly in this life more and more conform as the temple of the living God and not in this group of Jews and Gentiles, but as the church. A distinct people a very distinct group, yes, segregated from the world, absolutely. Every Christian must seriously take to heart the contention of divorcing themselves from those things that have been highly esteemed in their homes, in their families. These family traditions These, these things that are detrimental and opposite of the unity that Christ brings into your life. And I see that this is the case in many churches, really. And that's part of, I think, the downside, even though I'm certainly not opposed to conferences and you know, the regular rotation of the same conference speakers, those men typically do a tremendous and wonderful job and are very godly men. It's not necessarily their fault that many immature church members take those men and pit them against their session, against their pastor. I can't tell you how many times I've seen particularly small churches Small churches, they'll have, small churches will have a, 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 a group of people who mean well, but just quite frankly are just immature in Christ. And they can't recognize that what God has set before them is for their good. And so what they want to do is they say, well, listen, the church up in Nashville is doing these things. Why aren't we? Now, it's a very practical thing. Let me just give you a few just tidbits of information. I mean, okay, well, you have a church that's got, you know, 800 people in it versus a church that has 50 people. You got a church that's in the downtown city. You got a church that's in the country. 
there's differences. There's ministerial differences. There's monetary differences. Obviously, they can afford a large staff of people. And what these immature Christians do is they begin to unknowingly, but it ends this way, berating the session to do what this other church is doing that has no connection to them other than just being Christians and in the Spirit of God being growing up in the maturity and all of these various things and his giftedness and all. I mean, look. And they begin saying, well, why, you know, if we can't do these things or we don't want to do these things, then we don't want to be faithful and grow like that church. Well, let me just, just point out one of the immaturity thing. Brothers and sisters, if you think just by, if you think the Christian church is by method, you don't understand the Christian church. If you think that all you have to do is follow a business plan for the church, a business model of the church for it to be successful, then you really need to study this book. Because Paul teaches against that kind of philosophy. Paul teaches against those things. And in fact, Paul says, make no mistake about it, the kingdom of God is not words, but power unto God for salvation. The true church is a church that experiences life-changing desires. Men that come full of sin on their knees for some reason, they get up and they go, God has taken these shackles of sin away from me and all I want to do is learn and grow and follow Jesus. I can't explain it. That's what the gospel does. You can't get that from a manual. You, you don't get that because of one man coming and one man, you know, who's more gifted and more educated than whatever the case may be. That's not how the power of God comes. Paul says, I wanted to know nothing among you other than Jesus Christ crucified. Now, why is it important? Why would I even bring that up? Because, brothers and sisters, we ought to be thankful for our larger churches. We ought to be thankful for them. We ought to pray for them. They've been given a lot of, of, of talents and gifts and ability and influence. And, and let's pray that Christ use them there in that place for his own glory to save sinners and to grow them up. And to build the kingdom of God, just as we ought to be praying for ourselves and other small churches. And listen, the country, the average reformed church is less than 70 people in this country. Now, that was five, six years ago. I bet it's less now. That's the average reformed church is less than 70 people. I think it would be safe to say that this nation is built on small churches. By and large, yes, there are some big churches in our metropolitan areas. But there are a lot of country churches that 10 and 15 and 20 people gather every Lord's Day to hear the gospel preached. Is one more valuable than the other? 
Is one more powerful than the other? Is the gospel, is Jesus more favorable to one than the other? Paul says, God forbid. It's all the body working together for the glory of God for the sake of the power of the gospel. And this is where we get into this, this, this ministry, and this is what Paul is doing. I mean, if you look there in chapter 1, yeah, look, at, um, look at verse 17. We could read through this whole thing, and it would just continue to support what I'm saying here, notice what Paul says in, in verse 17. He says, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech so that the cross of Christ would, would not be made void. Now, now, Paul says something interesting here. He sent me to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech or in this wisdom of the world, if you will so that the cross of Christ would not be, well, made void. Now, let me say this, and I'm going to read another text from chapter 2. Paul is saying, when I came to you, I understood the cultural condition. I understood the, how you were wedded to these philosophers and to the, the, the practice of you know, oratory and the, the, how, how you long to hear these orators speak. I, I understood how you were wedded to those things. And so I made sure that when I came to you preaching the gospel, I didn't want to be like them. I didn't want to set Christ before you like they had set philosophy before you because Christ is not a philosophy. I didn't want to treat, I didn't want to give you the impression that somehow I was coming and I was like them and I was setting before you just another philosophy of life. So Paul says, I was careful. I was so careful that I came to you so that Christ in the preaching of the gospel would not be made void to you. Now look, chapter 2. Look at verse 1 and following. When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom but in, the, in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men but what? On the power of God. You see what Paul did as a faithful minister? Paul could read the room. Paul could understand cultural situations and settings and he goes, listen, I'm not going to go and I'm not going to, I'm not going to take Jesus and present Jesus to these at Corinth as if he's just another philosophy like these philosophers are doing all the time. I'm not going to be like these YouTube gurus. 
I'm not going to be like the TikTokers. I'm not going to be like the Instagram. I'm going, I, no, I'm going to come in, the, in weakness. I'm coming in fear and trepidation that I don't want to mishandle Jesus because I want to set Jesus before you and you ex experience the power of his saving grace. He's different. You know, ministers struggle with re relevance, wanting to be relevant. Churches struggle with it. Are we, you know, when we talk about doctrine, are we relevant? When we preach grace, we preach so and say, is that relevant? I mean, I mean, I've heard, I've heard good people. I mean, these are good Christians. I mean, I heard them say, you know what? I mean, maybe some of these other things would be good here and there. What Paul is teaching us, beloved, he said, I, I want to make sure that in some way I'm not guilty of misrepresenting who Jesus is to you. He's a powerful Savior. He comes to forgive sin and to make you a new creation in Christ. That's what he does. He, brothers and sisters, he comes to change you. He doesn't come to give you the best version of yourself. He doesn't come to present to you some uh, manual of, well, everyday living. No, he comes to make you a new creation in himself. You know, the number one best-selling genre is self-help manuals. Self-help manuals. Because that's all we need to do is read a book and follow these steps and somehow, you know, instead of sleep until noon, if I get up at five o'clock, and there would be benefits to getting up early and working hard and all those things for sure. But that didn't change your heart. That might change your bank account. I mean, if you decide to actually apply yourself and go to work, that might change your bank account, but it's not gonna change your eternal destiny. And that's what Paul is preaching. Paul is preaching a Christ that actually comes to save and to change lives. I mean, you can see it. Notice what he says in verse 14 of chapter 2. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised or examined or discerned. Paul is letting them know, look, you can expect the world to scoff at your wisdom, which is Christ. You can expect that snark when you tell someone, you know, I, I don't really know how I gave up all of these sinful things, but I, I, I mean, I repented of my sins and, and, and the Lord Jesus came into my life. <laughs> Lord Jesus. Yeah, I, I became a Christian and my life just began to change and I began to hunger and thirst for the word of God. I mean, you believe that book? That, that book, 
You follow that book? There's a reason, beloved, the world hates the Bible. There's a reason the world hates the message of the gospel. There's a re- Listen, as long as Jesus remains a philosopher on the History Channel, we can play it 24-7. But when he becomes Lord, Savior, Master of the universe, the only Savior of sinners, oh, can't tolerate that. That's more like extremism. And Paul tells us about it. Paul tells us to expect it. He tells us what the difference is. He says, no, why, why are they like that? Because they are void of the spirit. That's what the natural man is. The natural man is the one that doesn't have the spirit. They're natural men and women. They, just, they, they can't judge. They can't see. They can't appraise spiritual things. And what's the church doing? Longing and begging for the approval of the world when the world cannot see or appraise spiritual matters. I remember sitting into sitting in a committee meeting one time way back a long time ago. You wouldn't know any of these people. And the, uh, the, the committee was, was in, the purpose of the committee was to discuss who the next pastor was gonna be, should be, or who they wanted. And it, it broke down, I say it broke down because it started off well, started off in prayer, and it started off sort of seeking God's face. It started off wanting to obey the will of God and all of these various things. But it broke down soon after the fact as they began talking about the qualifications and conditions that they wanted from the man they would call. And the number one qualification was not found in Timothy or Titus. It was found in his Ph.D., he had to be a PhD. And here's, and, and listen, I have nothing against PhDs. There are many fine ones. The, but the, you know why they wanted a PhD? They wanted a PhD because the church down the road had a PhD. And the church next to them had a PhD. And the other church down the road from them had a PhD. And of course, if they've got one, then we have to have one too. Now, brothers and sisters, that's not seeking, that's the natural man talking. Now, am I saying that all these people were unbelievers? No, but I'm saying they were acting like unbelievers in that moment, in that circumstance. Let's be honest. How many churches would want the Apostle Paul as their pastor? Not many. Not many. So Paul goes on and, and he's teaching us these things. And you can see right there in, in these first four chapters, Paul does lay down one of the things we're going to see in these first four chapters is Paul lays down this, this, this godly ministry and what we ought to look for in ministry. In chapter 3, verse 9, he says, For we are God's fellow workers. He's talking about the apostles, these preachers. You are God's field, God's building, according to the grace of God, which was given to me like a wise master builder. I laid a foundation, and another is building on it. 
but each one must be careful how he builds on it. And he just goes on to talk about, don't build garbage upon Christ. And what's garbage? Garbage are the things of the world. Churches start off, they've got, a, they've got a gospel there. They do preach a salvation by Christ. But everything else in the ministry is out of the philosophy of the world. Now, how do we do this? Well, chapter 5, 6, 7, and 8 all talk about these sins that the church is allowed to come into its midst. I mean, sexual immorality, litigiousness. Litigiousness is the, uh, the craving for lawsuits, being litigious, petty. You know, it's what we hear regularly. Um, someone is being sued because they were told to show up to work on time. That would be a litigious spirit. Oh, I was offended because my boss told me I needed to be at work on time. And believe me, that's a real lawsuit that happened. That's, that's, that's something that's real. And the church at Corinth was being consumed by these sins. And some of these sins were very, very grievous sins that they had allowed to come into their midst. They tolerated them. And Paul says, you cannot tolerate them. It goes against the ministry of the apostles. It goes against the purpose and the cause of Christ that you were called to grace. He says it goes against the building, the master, the, 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 the edifice, the holy temple, Paul says. Paul says, don't you know that you are the temple, a holy temple of God? 1 Corinthians 6. But notice what he says in verse in, in verse 1, chapter 5, it says, it's actually reported, not only do we have factions and divisions in the church, but it's also reported that there is immorality among you, and immorality as such a kind as does not exist among the Gentiles that someone has his father's wife. He says, what are you doing? He says, here you are, a holy edifice, and you are guilty of sins that even the natural man won't commit. That shows you how low a church can fall. You can be guilty of even sins that the world shuns. I want to deal with the text. I'm not going to preach it now, but look down, if you will, at verse 9 and following. It says, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. All right, that's good advice. And, and Paul tells them that they have to clean out this sin. They have to address it and deal with it. And the reason he says they have to deal with it is because this sin is going to permeate through the whole body of Christ. It will wreak havoc upon the church. It will destroy the church, its witness, its testimony. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous or swindlers or with idolaters for then you would have to go out of the world. 
but actually I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or idolater or reviler or drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. And I'm going to stop there and I'm going to read those other two verses in just a second. You know what Paul's saying? He says, listen, we expect the world to act like the world, but we don't expect the world to be in the church. We are called, beloved, in this gospel ministry to a moral life. That's why you have the Spirit. That's what the Spirit is doing. The Spirit is cleansing and washing you and conforming you to the moral standards of Almighty God. Things that you might enjoy or long for in the past, you no longer do. Why? Because the Spirit of God has given you a new set of appetites, a spiritual appetite, a godly appetite, an appetite for holiness. Hey, if you don't have it, you don't belong to Jesus. You don't. And that's why Paul said, listen, this notorious sinner must be kicked out of the church. It's called church discipline. When's the last time you ever heard of a church exercising discipline? How can... You know, one of the things we do in our church members class and we talk about these things, brothers and sisters, do you know why we exercise church discipline in this church? Because we love you and we love Christ. And we're here to serve Christ first. We're here to preserve his honor, his glory, his name. And we're here to come to you to hold you accountable to that profession of faith that you made when you joined this church. We come to, to call you back in repentance if you're in sin. We come to plead with you, to beg. We'll come and cry with you if needed as to get you to come back and repent of your sin and to come back to Christ so that you don't have to be excommunicated from the body and turned over to Satan that Paul says. For what I have to do with judging outsiders, do not judge those who are within the church, but those who are outside. God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Remove him. It's been a terrible experience in my pastoral career that I've seen people fall into sin and become so calcitrant, so hard-hearted that they look at the session and, and, and who represent the name of Christ to them and say, you have no authority over me. When they joined the church, what were the vows? I promise and I vow to what? It's to submit to the peace and purity of the church. You make a promise. But vows are falling on hard times, haven't they, beloved? People say things all the time they don't mean. And we'll compromise them if they get a chance. And so we have to, look, brothers and sisters, it's the gospel ministry that we be held and even 
All of us are held to a moral standard for Christ's sake. I personally know of multiple professing Christians who are in sexual immorality and still members of churches that won't do anything about it. And you say, well, Jess, that's none of your business. I know. But brothers and sisters, you know what the Bible says? Fornicators will not inherit the kingdom of God. Their souls are on the line. Are they going to be that group that stands before the, whoa, 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 I thought I was a Christian. I thought all I had to do was check the box. I thought all I had to do was walk out, become the, shake the pastor's hand, take a couple of vows, and I was good to go. You misunderstood the whole process. And you certainly misunderstood the reason Christ had called you to himself. Brothers and sisters, the church is a holy society called out of the world for the glory of Christ's saving grace and name, and yet we have been empowered to do what? Say no to sin. I'm not saying there's perfection, beloved, but I am sitting here telling you that we are given the Spirit of God to strive spiritually for the things of God. And if that's not there in your life, then you are not a Christian and you can be saved today. You need to call upon Jesus today to save you. To give you the spirit. To change your heart. To give you holy affections and desires that you lack at this moment. And that you have lacked in your life. Brothers and sisters, this this is... This is the spiritual house that the apostles began to build that all other elders and preaching ministers of the gospel are building along beside. There is only one church. There is only one apostolic ministry. There are not many. Even among Christians, yes, we have many denominations, but there's only one faith. There's only one God. There is only one Savior. There is only one spirit of power. There is only one gospel message. There's only one house, one kingdom, one family, one baptism. It's a holy society, a holy people, a holy temple. It is God's edifice, God's house, beloved. And you are the bricks, the mortar, the timber that builds this house. And Jesus is using you to build the spiritual house. And we are to be held to a moral standard. We're not like the world. That's why Paul says, listen, don't expect this out in the world. But expect this among yourselves. And I would say this. I I know I picked on sexual immorality. Let me mention things that are closer to home before I close this morning. Anger. Hypocrisy. Bitterness. Envy. 
covetousness, any form of idolatry, Paul says in the epistle, will not inherit the kingdom of God. So what must we do, beloved? Well, if we have the Spirit, we're convicted if we're guilty of these things. We're convicted. The Spirit of God comes and rightly convicts us of our idolatry, of our immorality, and shows us that we need to repent of our sins. And beloved, we have the opportunity even today before we come and take even the Lord's Supper to what? Repent of our sins and and, and flee spiritually to Christ and go, oh Lord, I have lost my way in some respects. Come to me and aid me and empower me, Lord, put my feet back upon this gospel path and Lord teach me that the gospel and that Jesus is the source of all of life because that's what Paul says in Roman or in 1 Corinthians 15 which I've run out of time to get to beloved Paul teaches us Christ is the source Christ is the goal. Christ is the middle. He's everything. He's everything. And what you have to do is contend with Christ in every facet of your life. Your philosophies, why you think what you think. You must take your science and get rid of anything in science that contradicts the power of God. And that's why Rank psychology is absolutely opposed to the gospel. They don't understand it. Wow, psychologists scoff at the gospel. I need to give them the testimony that Aubrey and I heard the other morning about this psychologist working at a major mental institution head over its department and there was this one person that believed he was Jesus Christ. And so he was often uh, confined to a straitjacket because he was so annoying. And one day this Jewish psychologist picked up the New Testament and opened the door and threw it in there and said, you are not Jesus Christ, read this book. And this Jewish psychologist was not a Christian. Over the weekend, he came back. The weekend passed, he came back, and the guy was in his right mind, sitting on his bunk, unconstrained. Totally different than what this man was accustomed to seeing. And he said, what's happened? He says, I've become a Christian. I read this book, and I realized I'm not Jesus Christ, that I needed Jesus Christ. I mean, the man was, ended up being discharged. And so this psychologist said, what in the world would cause, what? This guy was a nutcase. Who in the, what? There's no way. So he takes the book and he reads it. And he becomes converted. His wife reads it. She becomes converted. All of a sudden, he starts handing out Bibles in the mental hospital. And people are getting converted. Now, this is a true story. Well, his boss 
calls him into his office and says, please tell me this isn't true, what I'm hearing. Are you a Christian? You have to stop handing out Bibles. In fact, what I'm going to tell you to do, before you speak, you're going to have to make a decision. I don't ever want to hear about this Jesus again. I don't ever want to hear about the Bible again. You need to make a choice, either Jesus or your job. So the man goes home and tells his wife. He said, I know the decision that must be made, but I needed to come home and tell you about it. And she agreed, yes, you know the decision that needs to be made. And so, of course, he quit his job. And this man became a professor later on. But, beloved, the world hates the gospel. But the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And it really changes people. And the gospel has created what Paul calls a holy temple unto the Lord. And, beloved, that's me and that's you. And that's all who profess the name, as Paul said, to the whole church of God. We are not of this world. We are of Christ. And we are held to a higher standard than the world. If you're here this morning and you've never known that power, call upon Jesus where you are. Tell him you want it. Tell him you need it, and he'll come, and he will show you his saving power and grace. Let's pray. Now, Father in heaven, I know the things that have been talked about this morning are mocked, and they are ridiculed in the world, but Lord, not on our midst. For us sitting here, we have experienced the saving grace of Jesus Christ, the power of God to turn us from our sins, from our wickedness, from our waywardness, from our atheism, Lord, from our, the vain philosophies of this world. And yes, we have much work to do, but yes, oh Lord, we are your children. And we confess, O Lord, that we need to rid ourselves of all of these things in our life that would come and compromise the unity of our fellowship. Compromise, O Lord, the, the, the progression of the gospel. Lord, that we might be about building one another up, glorifying the name of Christ, Lord. Taking seriously, Lord, the doctrine of your word. And Father, come, come and Lord, walk in our midst and bless us for your namesake, we pray, amen.